It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. My guest today is not only a great golfer and golf course architect, but one of the true gentlemen of the game, Jack Nicholas. Jack, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Mark. Jack, there's an old saying, uh, find the job that you enjoy doing and you will never have to work a day in your life. Uh, you have said how fortunate you have been to have not one, but two careers that you have really loved. You're still so productive. So I have to ask at the top, is it still fun or is it work? Well, I think I've, I actually, I've actually ended up with three now since I said that, Mark. I've, you know, I played golf. Uh, I love golf. It was golf led to everything that I did. Uh, without only a few putts, uh, more than somebody else, I wouldn't be able to do my second career, which was golf course design, uh, or my third career, which is raising money for uh, children. Uh, those are things that uh, first two were my choice. The second was uh, joining with my wife and, and her patients. So uh, I've been a blessed man to be able to have those things and uh, uh, be part of it. And, yeah, I, 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 you know, I've never found it that I've never had to work a day in my life. I've just absolutely loved every day uh, that I've theoretically worked and uh, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing all of it. With those three steps of your career, we'll focus on, uh, on areas two and three here in our conversation. Uh, when we all start out as golfers, uh, we simply tend to sort of look at the hole that we are playing, assess the challenges, and then do our best. And then we move on to the next hole, and we do the same thing. But at some points in your early playing days, you had to recognize that there was a flow to the golf course, how one hole leads to another, and that there's a rhyme and a reason to what the architect created. Do you remember when that time was for you that you began to view a course as the architect intended it? Well, uh, I always I always thought courses uh, that had a nice progression, like you're talking about, uh, were uh, the best golf courses. I grew up at Scioto uh, in Columbus, and Scioto started out with a fairly short par four, then had a little stronger par four, then had a little softer par four, then had a, a medium length par three, and then had another strong par five, par four, then had a nice strong five. You know, it, it had started to develop a bit of a rhythm, some tough holes, some strong holes, some right to left, some left to right, some high going down, some low going up, you know, a variety of, of different things. And I sort of thought that, you know, most golf courses, uh, to be a good golf course, it needed to develop a flow. And I got interested in golf course design. I was probably about 19, uh, I'm guessing 60 seven, maybe 66. Uh, Pete and I called me and Pete and I had been uh, playing amateur golf against each other. And we also uh, uh, became friends. And so Pete said, Hey, Jack, I'd like to have you come out and see what I'm doing. Uh, this new golf course that I'm doing for Fred Jones out in Columbus called the golf club. And I said, what do you want me to see Pete? So oh, I'd like to, I'd like your input on it. I said, uh, uh, you know, he says, he says, tell me what you think. I said, Pete, I wouldn't have a clue 
what a golf course is supposed to look like. <laughs> he said, oh, he says, you know a lot more than you think. Come on, I said, okay, I'll come out. So we went out and the first hole was tall and dirt. And the first hole was uh, pretty, pretty simple, down dog leg right, where you go down, they put up to a, a slight, slightly elevated green. I thought pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, the bunkering was fit the hole. And uh, from what I thought was properly for a strategic standpoint, we went to the second tee and all of a sudden we drove over the top of this hill that was sort of scarred up. And I said, what is this, Pete? Is all oh, this a takeoff of the hole from Presswick? I said, really? And they couldn't see, they, they, they couldn't move any dirt or do anything then. He says, ah, it's just, you know, you create a semi-blind hole and sort of, uh, I sort of like to get more you bite off of the bunker, the better off you are, so forth. And I said, yeah, but you got to learn that. He said, yeah, yeah, sure you learn it. I said, that's fine. So I went to the third hole. And the third hole was uh, a round green with four uh, round bunkers that looked like Mickey Mouse with ears in all four directions. And so he says, what do you think? And I says, what do you mean, what do I think? Well, what do you think of the hole? I said, I don't like it. Is what don't you like? So I said, well, I said, it looks like Mickey Mouse. And he said, what would you do with it? I said, I don't know what I do, Pete. I have no clue. Said, yeah, you do. Think about what you do. Well, there was a little creek that ran along the front left. And I said, well, I think I get that creek sort of somewhere in the hole and sort of tie that bunker on the front and sort of make that into a into a, a master part of the hole as master bunker as it's called today. And I get rid of the uh, bunker behind it and then I maybe re reform where I put the bunkers on the other side. He said, okay. And so that's what he did. And that's what the hole is today. Uh, we went on to the golf course and there were several holes. There was one right over an open pasture, 13th hole. And uh, there was nothing there and I said, he said, what would you do? I said, good gracious, I don't know, Pete. He says, I said, you know, I've seen a lot of holes where you have sort of a forced carry and uh, you put a little low wall along through the, uh, out at about, you know, maybe 200 yards on the right, then maybe 230, then maybe 250, and then circle it back towards the green. And you leave just high grass in between. He says, good idea. And he did it. And so, we did this through, through several holes on the golf course. The golf course turned out to be a nice golf course. And uh, uh, he asked me after we're done with it, he says, how was that? I said, Pete, that was fun. I really enjoyed that. And I said, and you used some of my ideas. He said, darn right. He said, you know, I don't have all the ideas. I need help. And okay. He said, would you consider consulting with me on some golf courses? And I said, sure. I think that'd be fun. I'd love to do that. Well. A year or so passed, never heard again from Pete on, on anything. And uh, Mark McCormick called me and said, um, Jack, he said, Charlie Fraser at Sea Pines called and he's interested in somebody who's interested in golf course design and uh, interested in a name that can help him with a golf course they're, they're building on Calabogie Sound down in Sea Pines. And he said, would you be interested? And I said, sure, absolutely. So I met with Charlie and I said, he said, well, Jack, this is the property. What do you think you can do with it? I said, I said, uh, uh, Charlie, I couldn't do anything with it. I wouldn't have a clue. I said, but I've been 
asked to work with a young fella called Pete Guy. And he said, never heard of him. I said, well, you will. And uh, uh, so he said, okay. So we brought Pete in and Pete on the back of a nap napkin as he usually does. We did a contract for the golf course, $40,000 fee. And so uh, we did the golf course. I made 23 visits into that golf course, never got a dime reimbursement. We took the 40,000 fee, put it back into the golf course for cha changes that, that Charlie wouldn't pay for and Pete wanted done and I wanted it. I wanted done and I had a blast. I mean, this, and then about two thirds way through the golf course, Fraser came to us and he said, hey, you guys, I've just contracted for a golf tournament called the Heritage Golf Classic. Really? We've got a 6,600 yard golf course and, you're, and we're gonna have it. He says, well, this, is, this was maybe June or July. He says, yeah, we're gonna have it right after Thanksgiving. Terrific. Well, anyway, we got the course ready. And I think, the, I think the players have loved it ever since. Never been long. It's always been strategic. It's always been fun. And uh, it, was, it was my start of golf course design. And that's a, a great comment that, that you said that, that Pete told you, I don't have all the ideas. When, when Pete passed away earlier this year, uh, you were quoted as saying that, that Pete was the most creative, imaginative, and unconventional golf designer that you'd ever been around. It, it, sounds, like, it sounds like you still might hear his voice in the back of your head when, when projects come along. Well, what I, one thing I got from Pete, which I, I've used since day one, is that golf is a much more pleasant game played downhill. Meaning you stand on the tee and the fairways below you, you'll see where you, what, what problems you have. And then if you go on, you, after you hit your tee shot, the second shot, the green's below you, then you'll see what's at the green. Now you obviously are not gonna have that every situation, but you try to create what you can by having your going from the green up to a tee. And uh, so you try to make your, you take up your, your elevation in that as much as you can. When I did Mirfield Village, uh, I think if you look at Mirfield, I think only, uh, there's only a couple shots at Mirfield that are up, uphill and a couple of holes. The 15th hole is a little uphill. And I think the second shot at 10 is a little uphill. I don't really think there's another, uh, uh, think about it. I don't think there's another uphill shot on the golf course. And uh, I say it's uh, not a bad philosophy on life to, uh, to to want to be playing downhill. Oh, I think it is because you see everything. Uh, the other thing that Pete liked, which I like, that and I love it, is you try to play in the ground as as natural as you possibly can. Now, instead of taking taking greens and elevating them uh, to get to have drainage. Uh, you build the green in at the level of the terrain. If you didn't have drainage, then you create drainage through a through a sump or something else. And then then your you know are your fairways. You don't have, want your fairways up. You want your trees to tie in at the elevation of the land of your fairways. So if you do that, that's this is a low golf course in Florida, South Carolina, places like that. That you needed to uh, figure out what to do then. So we, it's like this, like he did at the TPC. I did at the Bears Club, uh, and I think we probably probably added into uh, Hilton Head was a series of uh, uh, sumps and then sump bumps to send the water out into, into the master drainage. 
And uh, uh, I think a golfers looks so much better in its natural environment and its natural elevation. And so those are the kind of things that I learned from Pete and uh, things I don't like about Pete. Did. I, don't, I didn't like a lot of the straight lines that he put in. I didn't like, uh, you know, I didn't like to have fire insurance for my golf courses, uh, you know, with all the bulkheads can burn down. Uh, you know, he, he had a lot of that that was more than I wanted. I think a little bit of it's okay. But, you know, we didn't disagree. We didn't agree on everything. But I think that's why, uh, you know, everybody's got their own idea about what they want to do about different things. And uh, uh, if we didn't, if we all agreed, we'd have every golf person look the same. Speaking with Jack Nicholas, and it, it, that idea of collaboration is something I'd like to build upon. Uh, the, the list of golf course architects who have passed through Nicholas companies who are either there today or were there in the past is legendary. Uh, countless ASGCA members, of course, Lee Schmidt, Bob Cup. Uh, probably about was, 24 or 5. Yeah, uh, obviously your own son, Jack. John Sanford comes to mind. Over the years, you have collaborated both, whether it's an informal conversation in the office or something more expansive on a project, uh, does that collaboration help to, to fire the imagination along the way? Well, my philosophy was always be that I didn't have all the ideas either. Uh, but I was going to be responsible for what ends up on the ground. So uh, whether I had Jay Morris or Bob Cup uh, or Jim Leip or Chris Cochran or uh, my son Jackie or uh, whoever, whoever, whoever I'm working with, uh, uh, we I work on it. We work on it. What Bob and Jay and I used to do, we all would do separate routings and then we'd blend them together to come up with the best routing. Uh, so we've got a, a collection of ideas. Then we'd stake that. Then we'd go out in the field and we'd start to walk it. Then we'd start to open it up, uh, do, do general clearing. Uh, then uh, we start to see how things flew and we have trees that we found that we liked and we want or water areas that we thought were, were, were possible. How we probably put all that in and put it together. Now, I, if I had, if I had Jay Morris working, I would have Jay go out and put a little bit of the stuff that he likes in it. And if I liked it, fine. Uh, I would have the bulldozer operator. Whoever he it might be, uh, put his touch on how he feels. He'd ask me how, what kind of style of bunker I would like. And I'd give him an idea, but I let him use his own artistic ability as long as it fit in and it was consistent with what I wanted on the golf course. I haven't, I'd always have a uh, site coordinator who would be one of the young guys coming in. And rather than just having him being a construction manager, I'd let him have a little input and what was going on in the golf course. And if he had some input on the golf course and we liked it, it allowed him to grow. So I wanted all my guys to grow. That's why I guess I have so many guys in the American society is that those guys grew. I encouraged them to go on and work on their own and go do their own thing. Uh, and I would bring along more young guys. And so. It's, it worked uh, out. Worked out. That, every golf course. What I was going to say a little different flavor and everybody would have something different. So no two golf courses would ever be alike. You know, when I first started, uh, the first couple of golf courses 
people go there and say, oh, I can see Nicholas was here. It's left to right. Well, you know, I'm not stupid. I heard that. So uh, I, I, after my first few golf courses, I tried to try to blend in to make sure I had as much much right to left as I did left to right, as much water right as I had water left, as much right to left greens as I had left to right greens. You know, I tried to I tried to get it to where it blended. I tried to get uh, I tried to get a few short par fours, a couple short par fours, a couple long par fours, some medium par fours. I always like to get one reachable par five every time. Uh, two par fives probably reachable under certain conditions and one maybe not reachable. Par threes, I like to have one short one, two mediums, and one long one. If I did that blend together, in the old days, I came out at around you know, 7,000, 7,100 yards. Obviously, you expand on that today, but uh, it ends up with a pretty good blend of a golf course. Finally, Jack, in, in a survey that we did a few years ago, uh, we learned that ASGCA members had designed golf courses in 92 countries around the world. I was pretty impressed when we saw that statistic. And then I looked this week at the website for the Nicholas Children's Healthcare Foundation, where you have served children in 119 countries. Uh, the positive impact that you and Barbara continue to make on the lives of others is most impressive and, and it's something I know you take great pride in. Absolutely. Incidentally, we've done we've done golf courses, I think, in forty five countries. So about half of those. Wow. Uh, but the the, the foundation uh, the foundation started it started actually long before uh, uh, the actual start of the foundation. It started when when Nan was about eleven months old, and she started choking, and we kept getting her doctor. By the time we get her to the doctor, she was fine. So after about three or four of those episodes, the doctor said, we need to get this young lady to the hospital. And we, we got her to the hospital and we found a shadow in her windpipe, but turned out to be a blue crayon. And when they went down and the why with an adult bronchoscope, I don't know, but that's what they did. They broke it up and a lot of it dropped into her lungs. She obviously went into pneumonia and she, she was touch and go for about a week. So as Barbara and I were sitting in the waiting room, we said, you know, and we weren't at that time. We said if we were ever in a position to help others, we wanted it to be children. So when we started the Memorial Tournament, uh, that was the Columbus Children's Hospital, now the Nationwide Children's Hospital, uh, that has been the beneficiary from day one at the Memorial Tournament. And then we forward on uh, to uh, about 15 years ago, the Honda Tournament, when it came to South Florida, or was it was coming from Fort Lauderdale to, to, uh, uh, to Palm Beach area. And Phil and Fred Millsaps, who was ahead of the foundations or, the, or the, the Honda Charities, came to us and he said, Jack, Barbara says, what's in this area that we can I have, have children that we can benefit? And I looked at Barbara and I said, I think it's time you might want to go for this. And she says, absolutely. So we started our foundation and we have been the main uh, recipient recipient of everything that's happened at the Honda Classic. And we just received a check uh, yesterday for a million four for this year's efforts of five point some million that they raised at Honda. All the other money's going to some children's function too. Um, so uh, Barb, Barb, Barbara got involved in the, uh, in the foundations and she sort of, I was sort of the tag along and you know, Barbara had supported me through uh, 
40 or 40 some years of our life with golf courses and, and, and the golf course design. And now it was my turn. It's been my turn for the last 15 years to support her. And it's been a whole new life for me uh, to see how, it, how what's happened with the hospitals, the money. Uh, we, had, we, had, we had to use our best efforts. We weren't required, but we had our best efforts to have to raise, I think, 65 million for the hospital. We've now raised uh, 140 some. Uh, or actually, we've raised more than that. We've after this week, we've raised. Uh, uh, I said 146 million, and like we raised, we've raised another few hundred million this week, and so uh, we're we're up over 500 million. We've raised for the hospital now. Wow! And wow. Uh, you know, to go down to that hospital and see what it actually does. I see, uh, I, I, I tell lots of stories. One of my favorites is a little little girl was born in uh, Minneapolis. She was a twin. Uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> Tegan was her name. And Tegan had, had a twin sister, uh, who was just perfect, but Tegan was born with a half a heart in backwards and one lung. The doctor said, she says, See, she's not gonna live. You take this little girl home and enjoy her, love her, but she's not gonna be around very long. Well, a couple of months later, she was still around. And so they start calling around the hospitals. Nobody would touch her because they don't wanna have a death on their record. Well, uh, our doctor down, down at the hospital, uh, oh gosh, Red, uh, Redmond Burke. Uh, Redmond, called, Redmond said, you know, he says, inoperable is not in my vocabulary. He said, you bring that little girl down here, we're going to figure it out. So he made a model, uh, a, a, a 3D model of her heart, about the size of a walnut. And he, he figured out he couldn't go in the front, so he went in her back. Uh, he went in and he rebuilt her heart, couldn't do anything with the lung, but he rebuilt her heart. Uh, after about six or seven operations, he went back to the mother uh, and told her, says, uh, you take this little girl home to grow up with her sister. Well, that, those two have just finished their first year of preschool now. And they are the cute, cutest little things you ever want to see. I've fallen in love with Tegan, and I watch her watch her do all the things that her sister does, and you sit there and say, wow, this happened because of your efforts to be able to help help others. And I go countless things with, with heart operations, with, uh, with orthopedics, with uh, uh, brain operations, uh, you know, countless things that we've seen that, that these kids, because of the effort to raise money for the field, for the hospital. And part of our effort was to do outpatient clinics. Nobody likes to travel with a sick child. So we have 17 outpatient clinics, which are Nicholas Children's Hospital uh, around South Florida, West Coast and East Coast. And so, uh, you know, we, we can take care, care of everyday things. If they're really serious, then we take them down to the main hospital. But uh, what a different life this has been for me. And 
something I've really enjoyed raising the money, being part of it. I don't get involved in the hospital other than to see what's going on. And, you know, it's, uh, it's been so rewarding. It's unbelievable. And simply uh, no better way to end our conversation here today. Uh, Jack Nicholas, ASGCA. Jack, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. My pleasure, Mark. Nice to talk to you. That concludes this episode of ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of our podcast and more information on golf course architecture at ASGCA.org. Thank you for listening. And until next time, so long.